There is a podcast that lies between the imagination of two simple-minded earthlings. Travel with these two longtime friends, Jimbo and 80s E, as they attempt to explore the fifth dimension. Follow along with them as they take the key and unlock the door to the vast space between shadow and substance. This podcast is one of trivia, of insight, and of sounds and ideas from one of the greatest television shows ever produced. You are embarking on a timeless journey. There is your signpost up ahead. You are entering the tragedy of cinema's Twilight Zone. What you're about to watch is a nightmare. It is not meant to be prophetic. It need not happen. It's the fervent and urgent prayer of all men of goodwill that it never shall happen. But in this place, in this moment, it does happen. This is the Twilight Zone. All right, guys, welcome back to the Tragedy of Cinema podcast, the Twilight Zone series. I'm your host, Jimbo, and once again joined from the fifth dimension by my co-host... ADZ, back in the remote studio and uh, ready to launch right into this episode. I got like seven pages of notes, I think, for this episode. It's a lot. Oh, Lord, help us. Yeah. Um, yeah, we, we're right at the beginning. This is our third episode of season three. Um, the first two episodes... Kind of lackluster for a Twilight Zone series episode, I do believe. I know Eric and I had a little bit of difference of opinions, but boy, does they come together on this third one pretty well. Um, thoroughly enjoyed this one, but we'll get to that at the end. So Eric, if you want to go ahead and take it away. Sure. Uh, this episode is the season three, episode number three, and it's entitled The Shelter. And it was directed by Lamont Johnson, and it was written by Rod Serling. And the original air date uh, for this particular episode was September the 29th, 1961. And you guys know what time it is, our favorite time. Time for a little segment we like to call, On This Day in History. Alright, so for On This Day in TV and Film History, uh, this is for September the 29th. Let's go all the way back to 1951, and let's talk about the television, sports on television. CBS broadcasts its first football game in color. Wow. University of California versus the University of Pennsylvania at, uh, at Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So, first color broadcast of a football game, 1951. All right. Yeah. Skip ahead a few years to 1953. And the Milton Berle show premieres on NBC in the U.S. Uh, I don't know much about Milton Berle other than he was like a comedian, right? And he used to do all those roasts of like Lucille Ball and Don Rickles yeah. and all those guys. But I I went back and I looked up his, I Googled his face. I rec- He obviously has a recognizable face, but probably a little before my time. I think he was like uh, 93 or something when he died. And that was in the early 2000s, I believe. So Milton Berle... Again, we're right in the heart of like TV premiere time in, in in months as far as September is like a prime time for TV premiere. So 1953. 
Skip ahead a few decades to 1984, and we have Elizabeth Taylor, a very well-known actress. She undergoes rehabilitation at the Betty Ford Clinic and subsequently meets a construction worker and future husband, Larry Fortensky. I think I pronounced his name correctly. How'd you like to be that uh, construction worker? Well, I was going to say, uh, which which marriage are we going to be talking about? Because when you right. gave a date in history, I mean, there's only like eight to choose from, I do believe. Right, right. Uh, well, we'll get to somebody else here uh, in our trivia here who's been married uh, quite a few more times than even Elizabeth Taylor. But, uh, yeah, I can't imagine going to the Betty Ford Clinic and meeting Elizabeth Taylor, a beautiful movie actress, and then all of a sudden you get married. That, that Boy, that guy uh, had a stroke of luck there, I guess. Uh, one, one year later, in 1985, here's a show that uh, we all probably know, and that show is MacGyver. It was starring Richard Dean Anderson, and it debuted on ABC TV in 1985. Didn't right. care for it. Didn't care for it. Well, hey, don't. here's a paper clip and a rubber band, yeah. and I'm going to uh, solve this atomic bomb issue. <laughs> right, right, right. He MacGyvered it. Right, it's part of our culture now. Modern, More like well, MacGyvered it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 1986, just one year later, Designing Women, a TV comedy, debuts on CBS with Delta Burke, who was kind of a Elizabeth Taylor lookalike, kind of maybe. I don't know. Uh, that might be a stretch, but uh, 1986, also in 1986, the NBC true life drama Adam, his song continues as a sequel to the original NBC true life drama Adam from 1983. And that was about Adam Walsh. Do you remember? Was that guy's yeah, name? about the... John Walsh, John, was, John yeah, Walsh his did, son uh, was abducted, right? Amer- America's Most Wanted, his yes. son was a... a, a, a kidnapped from a sears uh right. i believe down in florida uh he was he was looking at one of the video games remember how you used to go in the stores they'd have the the video games uh-huh. that you could play while your parents shopped or whatever uh-huh. all of us did it we all stood around but uh basically i guess um the story goes that there were some kids causing trouble there and the security guard escorted them all out of the building mm-hmm. without their parents knowing right and i guess he just happened to be one of them so yeah. yeah, and he was with like a group of teenagers, older kids, and he was only right. like five or six. Yeah, yeah, that story does. I remember it being very, very dramatic, and a lot of people watched that back in the early '80s. And like, oh, they, I watched that movie too. It was yeah, a good movie. Yeah, they clutched their kids a little tighter. That was that was a pretty uh, impactful TV drama there in the in the '80s. All right. I do believe that is one of the only times I ever saw my dad cry because my mom's like, "Are you crying?" He's like, "I'm not crying." <laughs> <laughs> it's sweat. <laughs> uh, okay. So a few years later in 1989, I, I referenced uh, this person before, Zsa Zsa Gabor. She was convicted of slapping a police officer in Beverly Hills. Jimbo, do you remember that story? I remember this story. <laughs> yeah. So it was a big scandal back in the day. She actually was sentenced to three days in jail for this and had to pay fines of about $13,000 and perform 120 hours of community service, which she never did. And she was driving a Rolls Royce at the time of her, uh, well, at the time she got pulled over by the police officer and then ended up slapping him in the face. So Eric, yeah. if you got pulled over and slapped a police officer, how long do you think you would get in jail? Longer than three days. Yeah, for sure. Or you didn't get a gun pulled on you and shot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah. That's the, the difference. Times are different uh, nowadays. But uh, she actually, as I was just looking up concerning the scandal, 
Uh, she was married nine times. I, you know, I don't know how many times Liz Taylor was married, but uh, Zsa Zsa, nine times. And a couple of times, I think she divorced and remarried the, the same guy on same top one. of that. So, I mean, technically, it could be more than nine, but there were only nine uh, marriages, a couple of annulments, and several divorces. All right, here's, here's a big one. 1995 trial for former NFL running back and broadcaster O.J. Simpson was sent the to the jury. Is loose. Yeah. Well, we all know how that uh, what happened there. O.J. is you know he's still looking for the real killer out there even to this day. So he's committed to finding the real killer. So that was 1995. And then finally, let's end on a, a high note here. 1996 Nintendo 64 game system debuts. In the USA, in September 29th of 1996, it was only three months after it uh, rolled out in Japan. So, did you ever have a Nintendo one, 64? One of the one of the best uh, consoles ever. Yeah. Uh, Mario 64, Zelda, Carney of Time. Yeah. Um, but not so fast, my friend. We're not ending there because Jimbo did a little research on this day in history. Okay. Not only this day in history, but I did this exact day in history. So September, what was it, 29, 1961? Okay. I only got two things. Number one, one of the most popular songs at that time, Eric, let me know if you know this one, was Take Good Care of My Baby by Bobby V. Yes, I've heard it. Yes, familiar with it. And Eric, we would be amiss if we did not recognize one of the popular movies of this time. Do you happen to know what it is? 1961. 1961. You really like it. Cool Hand Luke? You made your daughters watch it, and uh, they liked it. Oh, Breakfast at Tiffany's. Breakfast at Tiffany's was one of the most popular movies at this time, so I thought that was really cool. Yeah, that is cool. Yeah, all right, let's give a little plot about our episode called The Shelter here, and I'll let you launch into the cast for us. So, a brief plot summary here. Dr. Bill Stockton has prepared well for any eventuality. He's built a bomb shelter for himself, his wife, and his child. His neighbors, on the other hand, have done nothing to prepare. During a dinner party, there is an emergency announcement on the radio that unidentifying obje- unidentified objects have been sighted en route to the U.S. and they may be under attack. As the Stocktons prepare to use their shelter, their neighbors panic, asking to be let into the shelter with them. Stockton refuses, leading to an angry confrontation so with that jimbo please this is a large large cast for uh, an episode so why don't you tell us about it well let me ask you a question just off the top of my head i had this at the top of my notes um does this remind you of the monsters are due on maple street any very much the there are alien, a lot of take the take the aliens out of the original and then substitute with this airstrike or bomb shelter yeah um, a lot also of i don't know i i couldn't find anything but do you is this the exact same street it kind of looks like it with the, with the, um, you know, the light fixtures in the houses. I couldn't find anything about that. I don't know if you do. Maybe later in the trivia, but that's what I kind of got. From yeah, it. No, I, that's um, a good question. I don't know. It does look similar. Uh, I have similar. some trivia about like the automobiles that they use, but uh, I don't know anything about if it, it was the exact same soundstage or lot Set, or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I couldn't find it either. So here we go with the cast. We got a rather large cast compared to our last couple of episodes, especially, uh, what was it, two? <laughs> right. <laughs> two people. Uh, so here we go. Uh, the main character, of, obviously, is Larry Gates. Uh, he plays Dr. Bill Stockton. 
Um, you may remember him from such movies as Invasions of the Body Snatchers, from uh, where he played Dr. Dan Kaufman. Uh, he was in In the Heat of the Night, which from 1967, which Kyle and I uh, covered on the main feed, uh, the Sidney Poitier movie, uh, very good, where he played Eric Endicott. Uh, I recommend that movie to anybody that hasn't seen it. And he was also in Cat uh, on a Hot Tin Roof in 1958. Oh, that's a good movie. And I haven't watched it yet, so uh, it's on the list for us to cover, so we'll have to cover that one time soon. Uh, then, um, I think the guy that probably gives the most, uh, outstanding performance in this is Joseph Bernard. He plays Marty Weiss. Uh, he, he played in a Star Trek episode where he played Tark in 1966. He had some other stuff. I didn't really list it down, but what a powerful performance he played in this one. Then, yes, Jack Albertson. Uh, he plays Jerry Harlow. You may remember him from a little movie called <laughs> Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory from 1971, uh, where he played Grandpa Joe. And Eric, I'm going to throw this to you. Do you think this is why Grandpa Joe has not been out of bed for the 40-plus years in the original Willy Wonka or whatever? Yeah, scared. The events, events of this? Yeah, scared to get out of bed. But also... Uh, he was in the Poseidon Adventure, which is a great movie if you've never seen it about a ship that, uh, like a cruise ship that uh, sinks. Um, also, and I did not know this until I was doing this trivia, but he was in one of my favorite Disney animated movies of all time, where he plays in the Fox and the Hound, where he plays Amos Slade, the uh, the old man in that movie. Uh, it's a great, great film. Brought me to tears a couple times. I love it to death. Uh, then we had Peggy Stewart. Uh, she played Grace Stockton. Uh, she was in a movie called That's My Boy in 2012. And to me, she kind of reminds me of June Cleaver in this episode. Yeah. You know, the everyday woman the, of that time. Uh, I think it's a clear homage to Leave It to Beaver, um, just like the All-American Family. Uh, then you had Sandy Kenyon. Uh, he played Frank Henderson. He was in a movie called Down on Us in 1984. Michael Burns played Paul Stockton. He was in a movie called The Private Navy of Sergeant O'Farrell from 1968. Joe Helton, who played Martha Harlow, uh, she was actually in a movie all the way up until she lived a long time. But she was in Dumb and Dumber 2 from 2014, where she played <laughs> Mrs. Snurgy, or Sneaky. Uh, and she was also in another Twilight Zone episode. I can't remember the name of the episode, but she played a, a character named Julie. Uh, you had Moria Turner. She played Mrs. Weiss. Uh, she was in a movie called Ben Casey in 1961. Uh, Mary Gregory. Uh, she I forgot to write down who she played. Uh, but she was uh, in a movie called Sleeper in, in 1973. And then you have John McLean. Milliam uh, is just referred to as Man. And I think this might be the guy that comes running over. Yeah. Um, says, yeah, in the middle of the episode. Uh, but he was in... Rambo First Blood Ooh. in 1982, where he played Orville. And he was also in the little movie that Eric just referred to earlier, Cool Hand Luke, where he was uh, played uh, Boss Keen, or Bass Keen. Uh, you had Scott, Scotty Morrow, who played the boy who was uncredited. He was in The Cosmic Man from 1959. It looked like a science fiction movie. But he was also in the movie Sleeper uh, in 73, same as with Mary Gregory. And yes, Last but not least, we have the legendary Rod Serling uh, with the narration and the host of The Twilight Zone. All right. Eric? Jimbo, thank you for the cast. Did you have something else that you wanted to share I off top? I do. I do. Uh, I found 
uh, with my trusty companion sidekick, uh, Books, uh, I found a couple of interesting paragraphs I'd like to read. Uh, the first one I'm going to read is out of the Twilight Zone Encyclopedia by Stephen J. Rubin. So um, he also did uh, was the author of the complete James Bond movie encyclopedia, so I thought that was pretty interesting right off the bat, too. But here we go. Uh, recalled director Lamont Johnson, quote, it was a time when everyone was nervous about atomic warfare and people had bomb shelters in their basements. It had a wonderful angle to it. We were all informed by journalism and the TV of the day that made us very nervous about having our own bomb shelters and security in case of the atomic bomb. So there was uh, more than the uh, usual pressure on the set and we were able to use that. It was wonderful. I uh, res resolutely refused to do it, digging a bomb shelter, because that was just giving in to the whole thing. I found the script a little preachy, but I just got thoroughly involved with the actors. Jack Albertson was a joy to work with. It was just a question of working on the characters of these wonderful characters, uh, actors and getting as much out of them as possible, which saved it to a degree. Commentated Rod Serling during an interview with future Hogan's Hero star Bob Crane on the uh, latter's morning interview show a few months after the episode aired. Did you like the old Hogan's Heroes there, Eric? Yeah, I watched uh, many of those episodes. I, did, I didn't know Bob Crane had a, a, a morning talk show, but here we go. Rod Serling had this to say. We had 1,300 letters and cards inside of two days, which is amazing because, I mean... Postal Express goes that fast? Yeah, even know. back then. You know, you, you, you episode, you know, they must have used UPS, right, Eric? Yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, he says, I think we hit some kind of nerve. I wrote it because I felt, number one, it had great immediacy. We, uh, we've been talking at home, my wife and me, about the possibility of building a shelter. And we were struck with the moral and ethical problem of what would happen if there was an alert sounding. And we got into our shelter happily because we'd built one. And neighbors with children come to the door and said, please let us in. Well, that was the problem. I don't know what is the ethical righteous and justice of this. I haven't figured it out yet. I'm not one of those knowledgeable men. Bob, I don't know. I didn't know how to end that thing. I didn't know what position uh, philosophically I could take. In terms of building a shelter of our own, we decided not to build it. For stringently realistic reasons, it's my feeling now that if we survive... What do we survive for? What kind of world do we go into? You know, if it's rubble, poisoned water, and inedible food, and my kids have to live like wild beasts, I'm not particularly sure I want to survive in that kind of world. So that was Rod Serling's quote. Now, if we move over to my second book, The Twilight Zone Companion, of course, I refer to this often by Mark Scott Zikri. I think every Twilight Zone fan should invest into this one because it's great. But here we go. Uh, the plot of the shelter is simple. Unfortunately, in making his point, which is that everyone is rotten in a crisis, Serling did not pay enough attention to logic and characterization. The people are clearly cardboard cutouts being moved around as the story dictates. One character, which I noticed this when I watched the, uh, the episode earlier, Joseph Bernard violently objects to battering down the door of the shelter in order to get in. Yet a moment later, he is one of those manning the battering ram. This clearly is not a logical, dramatic progression, but rather a too obvious and heavy-handed manipulation by the writer. Quote, That was Rod in one of his messianic moods, says Lamont Johnson, the director. 
uh, the episode's director. It was too uptight with its own self-righteousness, I think. I found it an interesting idea. I think the thesis was excellent, but I think its devices and its general style of writing were a little too pompous. Mm. So that's some strong words from the director to Serling on this one. So yeah, uh, I don't know if I agree with Lamont Johnson. I'll have to think about that, um, you know, assessment and maybe discuss it a little bit later in our questions and observations. But uh, that, that's some good stuff. Let's let's launch into this though, or we're going to be, you know, hours long <laughs> episode here. That's some good. That's some good uh, information there. Backstory. Let's launch right into the episode. And uh, the first thing we see is the the camera drops down onto a, a street that Jimbo referenced before. It might be the same street from uh, the Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. And from the outside of the house, we hear the Happy Birthday song being played, right? And the camera pans down to a window. And then we go from outside of the house to the inside of the house. And we begin Act 1 with inside of the house. We come to realize... And by the way, I, I might... So, Jimbo, you fill in the holes. I, sometimes I, I miss some parts or whatever, but I tried to outline this episode as best I could. Um, but going back to Act 1, uh, there's a birthday party for Bill Stockton, and many of his neighbors are present, and they're all uh, sitting around the table, right? Mm-hmm. And one neighbor, Jerry Harlow, he stands up and he gives a speech, and uh The speech goes a little something like this. It says, Doc, you're a very beloved fellow, and rightly so, and you may not have the biggest uh, practice in medical history. And the doc replies, that's true. But there isn't a single sawbones in the entire 50 states whose patients have such a regard, such an affection, such respect for their man with the little black bag as we do for ours. So I thought that was a pretty pretty good quote out of the the speech that he gives. And then... uh, you know, it's very celebratory. People are laughing, you know, they're imbibing, they're uh, enjoying their birthday cake and so forth. And the mood changes very quickly as uh, the doctor's son, Paul, delivers a message. And the message is that the picture went out on the TV and there was some kind of, he says, goofy announcement. And it said <laughs> to turn to the Connell Rad station. And I got some yep. trivia info about the Conrad Station. Um, the Conrad Station announces, though, that there's radar evidence of UFOs and that a state of a, a yellow alert has been declared. And they are encouraged to go to their prepared shelters or basements, right? And so mm-hmm. the neighbors at that point, and I'm moving along hurriedly here, uh, I'm probably missing a lot of details but uh we'll just try to keep it general so after the announcement the the folks or the neighbors that are inside uh, they run out onto the street and sidewalk and then they have that cool like whirling sound overhead that they used uh i don't know if they use the exact same sound and will the real martian please stand up but you know that ufo spaceship type sound that a lot of those uh sci-fi 60s sci-fi uh, utilized back then. So after the neighbors run out onto the street in fear, uh, Rod's narration, and I don't know, we may have to fact check this, but I think this at least is the shortest opening narration so far. I don't know if it's the shortest narration he ever gave ever, but it's the shortest one so far. Very short narration. 
and obviously I'll drop that in the episode, but uh, after Rod's narration, uh, the, the Stocktons, they like spring into action. Grace is filling up water jugs, uh, one which she actually drops in the Breaks. you know, uh, pursuit of filling up as much water and, and gathering uh, supplies as they can. Um, I like how he tells her, he's like, hey, you know, it's okay, calm down. He's like, but you need to treat this water like it's a, uh, your perf- like a lady's perfume that right. costs like $100 an ounce. <laughs> you know, I was like, well, right. well she's going to be really careful then. So as Grace is doing that, Polly is, uh, he starts moving canned goods uh, to the downstairs, and Doc is going to check the air filter and make sure everything's good there. And then, you know, they're just moving supplies down to their shelter as hurriedly as possible. Uh, and it, it's important to reference, and I did skip over this, I'm just thinking about that. During the birthday party speech, the construction of the shelter is referenced a couple of times with the, the banging of the uh, the trucks and the concrete and all that stuff. So they, they give you a little they're, indication of what, you know, what is going on. They're kind on. of poking jabs at it. Yeah, him. exactly. And uh, this story kind of reminded me a lot of the, um, the ant. what's the old fairy tale about the ant and the i can't remember now i mean it's slipping my mind now now i'm looking really dumb but basically the stocktons have been very studious in in preparation and it's referenced throughout the episode many times that the neighbors were out you know i don't know celebrating the, the you know there were a lot of birthday parties cookouts barbecues uh, a lot of social gatherings when that time, you know, Bill at the end of the episode, and I'm jumping ahead, I apologize, but he basically tells them, you know, hey, you guys could have been using your time more wisely, and that's why you're on the outside and not on the inside. But back to the water jugs, we uh, and we see everyone in the family moving around and doing their part to ready themselves for the worst and grace is obviously shaken up she drops one of the glass jugs as we said before and shatters all over the floor and she tells bill hey hey there's hardly any water coming out of the tap and the, the water slows down and the lights actually begin to flicker and so the stocktons hurriedly move their supplies into the basement and then once in the basement grace remarks that the bomb is likely to hit new york which is about 40 miles from where they're at so we can deduce that they're probably somewhere in like connecticut maybe i think someone wrote uh, as a possible residence because it's never mentioned where exactly in the u.s they are um there's enough food and water here to last about two weeks and maybe longer depending on you know how it's used that's what bill says and then the 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 there, uh, Grace asks an important question. She says, oh, Bill, why is it so necessary to survive? What's the good of it? Wouldn't it just be better and easier or just quicker if we just... And then she cuts herself off there, and then the, and the doctor's response is, Grace, that's why we have to survive. That's the reason pointing uh, to Paul. Uh, he's the reason. He's only 12 years old. He may only inherit rubble now, but he's only 12 years old. He's only 12 years old, Grace. And uh, 
that's kind of where we end act one. The stage is kind of set up. And act two sort of opens with the neighbor, Jerry. He's banging on the window, right, in the kitchen. And Bill tells Jerry he needs to go fill up his water jug and get in the basement. You know, he needs to prep himself. Why are you over here at my house banging on my door? And then Jerry asks Bill if he and his family can come over and get into their shelter because they're sitting ducks over there. We don't, we're not prepared at all if there's some kind of nuclear holocaust. So Bill says they can use their basement, but the, but the shelter uh, is only designed for three people. It's a 10 by 10 room. There's only a certain amount of air that can be utilized. And if they put a bunch of people in there, they're, you know, they're obviously going to use up the air a lot quicker. So Bill tells Jerry that no one wanted to admit the worst was possible. And now that it's out of his hands. So after him and Jerry have this exchange, he tells him to, to, you know, go prepare. He offers up what he can, but eventually the doc, you know, goes into the shelter and closes the, the door. And he, and he, as he's doing that, it might be before he closes the door or shortly thereafter, he, he tells Jerry, please God protect you, Jerry. It's out of my hands. Like it's out of my hands, you know, uh, well, I think it's very interesting that he says, look, he said, we built this house with all the modern technology. You know, we got electric this, electric that. You know, we never even thought about something like this, which I think that is very interesting that um, – and I, and I wrote this quote down that I, that I uh, kind of summoned up. I said, modern technology does not equal prepared. Um, yeah. I think I think um, just by seeing this even at this very early stage um, – I kind of allude this to the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, people were going just crazy over toilet paper and, and stuff like that. Uh, and that wasn't, I mean, yes, it's a threat. Don't get me wrong. But, I mean, it's not a nuclear threat. Um, it was a biological threat. But, I mean, I think this episode, you can draw a lot of conclusions to the whole uh, COVID-19 pandemic and just how people act towards each other when a crisis comes in their life. So. Yeah, definitely could draw a lot and, of comparisons. Eric, one of my favorite quotes that I've used uh, in all my jobs from here on out, I always do the quote, a lack of planning on your part does not constitute an emergency on my part. <laughs> that is one <laughs> thing I live by. <laughs> you should have that uh, uh, wood engraved in wood and put it on a plaque and then hung right above your workstation or something. You know? Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so just people would just come up and see that. And you know, like, you I know you know exactly what I'm talking about. When yeah. hey, hey, I need you to do this. And, hey, you know, you should have thought about that. Yeah. <laughs> and also, uh, do you get the feeling that the doctor is a door to door doctor, uh, like a, makes house calls and everything? Because he says, "Go get my black bag." You know, I I don't know if that's just even in the 1960s if. The doctors were, you know, going, obviously that's not kind of a thing now, but maybe back in the 60s, they still kind of carried those little black bags that doctors were known for. Like their own personal tools, just leave them at the office. Yeah, because Jerry referenced, he used the word sawbones, and that is a reference to a surgeon. So maybe he was a surgeon, I don't know. But uh, anyway, uh, yeah, that's an interesting... A little tidbit there. I would guess that, you know, 
maybe back in the day when you graduated medical school, they just issued you your own little black bag with all the, <laughs> you know, medical supplies. I think in they will. It reminds me of Doc Baker from Little House on the Prairie <laughs> yeah. with his horse and buggy and the yeah. black bag. <laughs> right. So, uh, where did we leave off? So Jerry, you know, he's kind of out of luck, and the doctor backs in. He shuts the door to the shelter. And then shortly thereafter, the Weiss family arrives in tow. Marty, he begins to plead with Bill. First, he kind of talks to Jerry a little bit. And Jerry's like, look, he's not letting anybody in, whatever, whatever. And then Marty begins to plead with Bill to let them in. And and Bill says, Marty, if I could, I would. Do you understand? I swear to you that I would. But it comes to the conclusion very quickly. Marty's like... But you're a doctor. You're supposed to help people, you know, kind of pleading with him. Um, and, you know, the doctor, the good doctor says, look, if there's any way I could have helped help you, I would, but I can't. He says, everything has changed now. That was a million years ago, Bill tells Marty. Like, the, the whole, everything's changed now. Like, I'm trying to, my one focus is for on my family and making sure that they survive and his focus, obviously, is protecting uh, his wife and child. Then we move into Act 3, uh, where the Weiss family, they're sort of dejected. Uh, Marty's sort of, like, scrambling, trying to figure out what to do. He move, They move through the room of, their house, of the Stockton's house. They're like kind of in the dining room where we originally opened the episode. And they're moving through. And then they are greeted by the neighbors at kind of like at the front door. And then uh, Jerry offers a suggestion. Uh, his suggestion is for all the families to stay in like one basement and pool everyone's resources like water and food. And just see how long that they can last. And uh, Martha Harlow... She suggests that it isn't fair that they have a bomb shelter while our kids have to wait for a bomb to drop. So there's the the attitude that comes through very quickly. I, I mean, I struggle with this one, right? Because, I mean, what would you do? I, I'll save that for the end. But, like, she's... To say that it isn't fair is a wild a wild accusation, in my opinion. But well, I'll move on from there. We'll maybe discuss that on a broader scale well, later you know the um the one guy comes over he says well let's just go down to the basement and break down the door yep and i don't think he's understanding right if you break down the door and the radiation comes everybody what dies. good is that gonna do yeah. <laughs> right there's no different than you being in the basement yeah that was... uh, and and on a side note that door is not very sturdy yeah let me just say. we'll get to that too uh, the guy that suggests that they break down the door is frank the neighbor and marty says uh he he offered marty he offers his suggestion hey everybody maybe we should just draw lots and to see who, which family gets to go in and uh, which doesn't make sense either because they're you know if they got two weeks of food and water and air for three people it's going to go down to like two days when everybody's in there but once again in the midst of the chaos i i love this scene the two young boys are eating remains of the leftover birthday yeah, cake. yeah like, i see that i was like that'd be me and eric said they're eating the cake on the <laughs> all the, the parents, table are, while about the parents to, are bickering yeah they're about to lose their minds and here are these two kids they're just like oh leftover birthday cake eric do you 
do you remember when we were younger and we'd come over to your house or whatever and uh, our parents would be playing Monopoly or something at the at the, the kitchen table, you know? Do you oh, remember yeah. that while we were in there playing uh, oh, like yeah. pro wrestling on the yeah, Nintendo? Yeah, we would always you know, want to... <laughs> when you're a kid, you always wanted to sit at the grown-ups table and play the you know grown-ups game, but... Uh, and they're like, shoo, get away, get yeah, away. <laughs> go away. So, where did we leave off? So, Marty suggests the drawing of lots in the midst of the chaos, and, you know, the boys are eating the cake. So, they... Both of the families, they are actually there are three families I think represented here. They descend to the basement, and again they try to uh, they try to plead with the doc to let them in. So Jerry tries to be the voice of reason, right? Uh, he tries Tried. to tell them like, "Hey, look, you know this is this isn't beneficial. Like we're not gonna get anywhere. We're just gonna basically kill our all of ourselves in the process of trying to break into the shelter. So, uh, you know, Frank is here now, and in a fit of rage, he punches Marty in the face. And also, really racial rage because they exchange some uh, unpleasant. You know, Frank sh- shoots very many shots, uh, racial uh, shots at Marty. He punches it, it punches him in the face, and I, I this really stuck out to me. The nice cinematography with Marty's face being like in between the slats of the steps, and how the camera was posted up. I thought that was really cool. After he, you know, Frank punches him, he falls down on the stoop, and I thought that was a really cool shot that they had in that. Episode. Right, uh, but I also think that you know they're like, hey, we're gonna go over to the next street over, and the next street over. And they're like, what are you? Are this ain't their street? Why do we care what happens to them people over there? So these people have just completely gone lost their mind them women have just lost their mind about this is and, and you know and i think it's the main uh what's his name um grandpa joe i'll call him that because he remembers his name jerry i think jerry he's like look he's like it's the next street over it's not another country you know? right. he's like these are your neighbors your neighborhood right and i failed to mention that there was a another neighbor who came over um when they met when the families met at the front door kind of everybody kind of meets at the front door of the Stockton's house before they go down. And uh, the neighbor had a transistor radio, and I got a bit of trivia about that, uh, that he was holding. I don't think he's actually, I think he's uncredited or he's just called man. But yeah, you referenced that. He's the one's like, well, forget about them. They live two streets over. They'll probably try to get on it, in on it too. We just want to get the pipe, but we won't tell them what we're doing with it. Um so now they've procured the pipe and they are going to use it as a battering ram to break down the door to get into the shelter. Um, and just as they're breaking down the door, the announcement comes over the radio that uh, it's revealed that there is no danger, that the previous UFOs have been identified as satellites. And then all the families begin to embrace and Frank begins to apologize to Marty for his oh, yeah, comments. Indeed. But the damage, I mean, the damage has already been done. So the real fallout, I mean, if if you want to be really philosophical here, the real damage, the nuke really was the, 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 the relationships are damaged at this point. It's completely destroyed. And it's, yeah, uh, it's pretty wild how that, and, and, and ironic that they're trying to avoid a huge Holocaust and they end up blowing right. everything and I, up. And I th- and I think that the the end of the episode where Doc gives that speech. Oh, it's great. Um, it's a great speech at the end. And I wrote down a little bit uh, about it. But uh, I, I, before he says that speech, the uh, 
what does they Marty's like or somebody suggests a block party. <laughs> Eric, you ever been to a block party? And he's like, yeah, yeah, let's just do a block party and get back to to normal. Right. And that's when Doc says, I don't know what normal is. Yep. He's like, I, I don't know what what it, what it is anymore. And he's like, look, hey, we'll help pay for the damages, you know, because they've destroyed his, not only his bomb shelter door, but they overturned his tables. Uh, who knows what other damage they did. And he's like, I, I don't know what kind of damages there are. Um, so th- that ending speech by Doc right there, I think it sums up the whole episode beautifully. Yeah, it's funny how they use, he references the word normal too. We heard that a lot during COVID, like the new normal was the expression he used kind of uh, when things were getting back to normal. And again, just drawing another parallel to the pandemic, like the damage had already been done. People, had, I mean, I don't want to go on a big long rant about this, get on my soapbox, but that damage had also already been done also like people's businesses have been closed, but just, just to bring in another parallel, cause you referenced it before, uh, to a lot of feels, uh, of things that happened to us, not a short time ago to what now, some, some three years ago, maybe. Um, well, it's, you got, you got to think how many relationships have been damaged from the COVID-19 pandemic by just the vaccinations yeah. Whether you're vaxxed or you're not vaxxed. I mean, I'm sure that's caused rift in families across this country and probably the world yeah. uh, where they probably don't even speak to each other anymore. And it's over something so trivial um, yeah. as that. And, and it's just a shame that even somebody you've known your entire life or maybe your best friend or your brother or your sister, or cousin, family, relations, or co-worker, um, yeah. it basically drew a line in the sand where basically they can't coexist anymore. And yeah. um, I think I think that's what you're seeing in this. This neighborhood will never be the same in this episode nope. because of this one thing. Will it draw them back closer together? Maybe, but I doubt it. There will always still be those stinging remarks that Frank yelled at, uh, those racial tenses that Frank yelled at Marty. Even though Marty at the end is trying to do the right thing. Yeah, yeah, let's have a block party, you know, try and just to smooth it over. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, they always say um, there's always a little bit of truth in everything you say. Um, so... Yeah, it's sadly, it, it turned into a brother-against-brother brother type mentality, unfortunately, and that's that's what uh, transpired here, as well as during the pandemic for us. But uh, let's transition into trivia, if I, I could. This, this was an interesting piece of trivia right off the top. It says, early in the story, Paul tells the adults that their TV set has gone blank and that the viewers have been told to tune in to the Conrad station. So just a little bit of trivia about Conrad, which stood for Control of Electromagnetic Radiation, was a civil defense radio system that went into effect on December the 10th, 1951. Under Conrad, most of AM radio stations and all FM uh, and TV stations in the United States would go off the air in the event of a national emergency. Selected AM stations would then uh, air official information instructions to the public on the 640 and 1240 frequencies on the AM dial. Radio sold in the U.S. from 1953 to 1963 were required to display the triangular civil defense symbol on their dials and frequencies. So if you can find an old radio from 19, whatever, 53 to 63, it should have like a, a little arrow on the dial. Now that makes me want to go look, <laughs> look for one. Um, 
So, but effective on August the 5th, 1963, Conal Rad was replaced by the emergency broadcast system, probably, which that's the one we're more familiar with. It's called EBS, under which most AM, FM, and TV stations would remain on the air in the event of an emergency, but would switch over to the official news and information. And then on January 1st, 1997, EBS was replaced by the current emergency alert system, which is called EAS, which essentially is EBS plus cable TV, satellite TV, and radio. So there you go. There's a little bit of background about Conrad and how it was utilized during that time period. Uh, the production number was assigned on April 19, 1961, and on the morning of May 17th, shortly before the rehearsals began, Lou Littlefield's voice was taped at MGM Sync Room A for the Conrad voice. So that I guess the guy's name was Lou Littlefield, who voiced the Conrad, you know, uh, updates and uh, the codes. Uh, on July 19th, the same message was recorded again to fit the scenes required, as well as the screams and shouts from men and women uh, from the action-packed scenes. Um, Sandy Kenyon's character mentions going over to Bennett Avenue to get a pipe for a batting, battering ram. Bennett Avenue is where creator Rod Serling grew up as a child in New York, so there's a little bit of trivia. A similar subject was covered in the first season of Happy Days uh, from 1974. Uh, the episode was called Be the First on Your Block. On May 7th of 1974, the Cunninghams contemplate adding a bomb shelter to the backyard until friends want to know if they will be included. You ever watch the ha uh, Happy Days, Jimbo? Should have asked oh, me. yeah, I love the Happy Days, but yeah. I don't remember that episode. I don't either. Um, you know why? Because if there was a nuclear bomb coming down, the Fonz would have just went, hey, <laughs> right. and it would have blew up before it even right. reached them. Yeah. <laughs> so another uh, TV show parodied this episode, and it was The Simpsons, and it was the sixth season of The Simpsons, and the episode was called Bart's Comet. In this episode, uh, that was parodied. Uh, the entire neighborhood attempts to escape a meteor destined for Springfield uh, by squeezing into a bomb shelter. There is enough room for everyone except for one person who is forced to stay outside and face Armageddon. I don't know if you had time to catch that Simpsons episode. It was very different than this one. It was very lighthearted, and it was uh, what's the neighbor's name? Uh, he's the one that he's the one that built the bomb shelter, and he's the one that's Flanders. To, Flanders, thank you. <laughs> He's the one that's forced to stand outside. And, uh, yeah, that's pretty funny. I would, yeah, some, you guys need to check it out. It's pretty good. Um, moving along. The last unnamed neighbor to join the assault on the bomb shelter is carrying a rectangular palm-sized device. This was a first-generation transistor radio that had come to market about four years previously. Uh, these small, easily carried radios were popular with sports fans who would take them to stadiums as well. As with teenagers who played no small part in the popularity of rock and roll music in the 50s and 60s. You ever have a transistor radio, Jimbo? Mm, not that I can think of. I know my, I think my brother in law is really big into that. Yeah. I had one. It was a, I got it for Christmas. I think it was a Smurf transistor radio and it broke about three <laughs> days after I got it. <laughs> I think it was about five or six. Yeah, uh, yeah, Papa Smurf on the front, on the dial, yeah. It was it was cool for about three days. I think I 
I was notorious for breaking things as soon as I received them as gifts. Notorious uh, for breaking the girls' hearts, Eric. Breaking yeah. the girls' hearts. In uh, a doubtless <laughs> and intentional bit of casting, the portrayal, you talked about this earlier, the portrayal of the doctor's wife, Peggy Stewart, is nearly identical to Barbara Billingsley or June Cleaver on the then popular show Leave It to Beaver. From her speech patterns, color and style of hair, cut of her dress, and June's ever present pearl necklace. Pearl uh, she, necklace. She is near a near twin. Uh, I don't. I don't know if it was written intentionally. Maybe it was. It's, it doesn't say in trivia. It just sounds like this might be someone's personal opinion. But I can see how they could come to that conclusion. Uh, the exteriors of the home, the street along, which the opening music is also is emblematic of Leave it to Beaver. Okay, so I get that. How the initial shot was and the music and how the camera, the cinematography starts from the outside of the home and then goes. Yeah, it's very similar to the Leave it to Beaver, uh, which is also a great show. From the 50s. Uh, Joseph Bernard portrayed Marty Weiss. And a year earlier, he portrayed Mindy Weiss in Murder, Inc., 1960. Don't you have that on your voodoo, Murder, Inc., baby? I thought I saw it, but I haven't watched it. I have a lot of stuff I don't even know. (laughs) Okay, now I want to take issue with this next piece of trivia. Just a slight issue. There, uh, No children were on hand during the two days of rehearsal. Only adult uh, and the principal characters were involved in dress rehearsal. This was done for three reasons. One, uh, would have required a welfare worker on the set of uh, on the set for limited hours. Two, the expense to have young children on the set during the rehearsals would have been an unnecessary cost. And this is the one I take obse- uh, objection with. The third, they had no speaking parts, so there was not ne- they were not needed until the time of filming. Well, Paul had. Several speaking parts, so I think they're talking about the younger children, the ones yeah, who are eating the cake. Probably the babies and the and the cake, cake right. eaters. So I just put, what about Paul? He had lines, so um, I don't know if he was at rehearsal or not, but there were child, at, you know, what's he play, like a 12-year-old boy? Maybe he was a lot older in real life, I don't know. Um, could be. Uh, as in previous episodes, Sterling avoided giving the exact locale of the story. You know, it was... Uh, Assume that it was about uh, 40 miles away in Connecticut. Uh, we go, let's talk about Mark Phillips, who played uh, Dr. Stockton. He was raving in his review. He said this was a first-rate script by Serling. And my character, Dr. Stockton, believes that he was doing the most reasonable thing with the shelter, but it turned out he had hopelessly misjudged the results of his actions. We had a wonderful cast and an excellent director and a happy company and crew. And it was a fascinating script. And when I saw the episode years later, I didn't like my performance. I thought I had overacted, but the script and direction and the cast made it all work. And then I got a little, few little tidbits about the DeForest Research Group. Um, they had a few comments about the episode. Uh, and it, it really centered around the Conrad. It says comments such as a state of martial law is hereby declared was considered inaccurate because no reference to the state of martial law was found in either yellow or red alert announcements. So apparently mm-hmm. there is no martial law in red or yellow. Uh, it also was suggested that uh, no commercial traffic of any kind will be, permit- be permitted on the streets or highways. They, they suggested that that be eliminated because a yellow alert did not ban vehicles and rather gave 
detailed instructions for local dispersal and movement via automobile. And then I think uh, Serling referenced like a searchlight at one point in his writing and they came back and said that the searchlight was obsolete because of the high altitude of the modern aircraft and missiles there you know it's not like a world war ii type scenario uh these things were precision guided now even in the 60s so there would be no need for a, a searchlight in a bombing raid uh this was interesting as i wrap up here well, there's a couple things. Two, two more things. I'm sorry. Serling's script was never made ready by any governmental agency involved, i.e. the United States Air Force or Civil Defense. No arrangements were made for such a reading, either on an official or unofficial basis. So the United States government just basically, they never even checked it out. This thing got all the way to air on national television. And they didn't even <laughs> peruse the script, I guess. Now, here's a really interesting to me, it is anyway. Originally, the script was slated for November telecast, but was pushed ahead a few weeks since current news regarding civil defense was stepping up quickly in September and October. Back in July, President John F. Kennedy spoke about civil defense issues, and many states across the country were establishing their own policy. Exactly one week after this episode of The Twilight Zone was cast, or telecast, President Kennedy advised American families to build bomb shelters to protect them from atomic fallout in the event of nuclear exchange with the Soviet Union. How about that? That's pretty heavy. That's right. Well, I, I had that wrote down in my thing about the Cuban Missile Crisis. It was just, I think, a year later in 1962 when the whole uh, Russian uh, Soviet Union were going to uh, use Cuba to basically store missiles there exactly. to launch on America in yeah. a quick attack. So, yeah. So here's here's my final one. This is a lighter trivia. The Ford Motor Company is credited for supplying the automobiles in this episode. Ford worked out an arrangement with Cayuga Productions to supply vehicles on the condition that the company receive acknowledgement during the closing credits whenever an episode could incorporate an automobile in the production. So I think there was a shot of cars on the street initially as we opened, and then the cars were shot as the families were running out of the house. So those were... Apparently all Ford automobiles that were used in the episode. Jimbo, any other trivia that you want to throw in before we wrap up with our thoughts? Nope. Nope. No, I mean, I think we rattled on long enough yeah. about this episode. Yeah, this is a long <laughs> one. So the, just just quick goofs. You already referenced one, Jimbo, and that's the shelter door obviously was made of oh, some terrible. kind of like plywood. And when it finally broke, one could tell that it was pretty easy. You could tell easily that it was flimsy material rather than sturdier and more material that was impervious to radiation. They put a, should have put a lead door on there, but I probably didn't have it in the budget to build a, a lead door. And the large jug that Bill carries uh, is full of water at the top of the steps, and then it's empty at the bottom. Empty you know, when that. he drops it. Yeah. Which, when we're talking about um, budget, I don't think I gave the budget here. This one was a moderate budget. It came in, I think, around 49000 Let me give you the exact figure. 47708 and I didn't have cost for inflation, but you can pretty much uh, put about... Uh, times 10 on that so probably about four hundred seventy thousand dollars with uh, inflation and this one was filmed and rehearsed well the filming dates go all the way back to may 19 22 and 23 of 1961 so this was filmed in may and released in september 
And it obviously from the trivia we already gave, it was pushed ahead a few months. It wasn't supposed to come out until November, but with all of the current events that surrounded that time period, it, it got pushed up. So Jimbo, I've talked long enough. Please tell me what your thoughts, feelings, questions, observations are for this. All right. First of all, um, the main character, Doc, he's a doctor. And what do doctors have that most people don't have? Money. So uh, for him to say, well, you guys should be building a bomb shelter uh, planning, maybe they don't have as much money as you, Doc. So that may be a little pompous of you to say. Uh, But then again, if somebody just built a brand new house with all the uh, up-to-date modern technology, then maybe they are just as wealthy and this is a nice, rich neighborhood. Yeah. They're here, they're there. Um, I think the cinematography was great. The use of the shadows and lighting were great. Um, I think what I would have loved to have seen is if just for a second, remember when the lights go out mm-hmm. um, in there? If it would have just went to a blank screen like and just had the, the uh, Conrail thing over the, the radio going, mm-hmm. the voice over the radio, and then have... Uh, the doc click on his headlamp or whatever in the shelter. I think that would have been cinematography gold right there. I think that's just, I think that's just a missed uh, thing. Yeah. Um, I love the characters. I love Marty in this episode. I think he wins the uh, character of the episode. Uh, followed closely by Doc. Everybody did such an outstanding performance in this episode. Um, it's a breath of fresh air from the previously two episodes of the Twilight Zone we've seen so far in season three. Um, so I really enjoyed this, and that's why, Eric, I am giving this a 9 out of 10 Wow! Uh, for the Season 3, a 9 out of 10. Wow, that's a, that's a hefty score. That's, uh, I, I, this is one time that uh, we actually agree, whole, I wholeheartedly agree. Um, I just have a couple of questions. In the context of the current events, uh, at the time, you know, the Cold War and everything's go- going on during the episode... Could this be, or is this, the most frightening episode of the Twilight Zone? And I say that because it's so close to real life. Can you imagine watching that in real time? Like, this would be frightening. Well, Eric, we still, ha- we, we still have, like, uh, over half of the Twilight Zone episodes still to watch, so I will hold my judgment yeah. uh, for of all time until we watch all of them to make sure. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, it's it's definitely, I think, I think what makes this episode so special is even though when it was shot, it was about a nuclear missile or atomic bomb coming, uh, it could very much, uh, it's very relative to today's and what could happen today. I mean, um, you know, you've got uh, the North Korea uh, that's been throwing missiles into the ocean and they are claiming that they have a missile that can reach North America, um, even America, Los Angeles or whatever. So, uh, yeah, I think there is some cause for uh, to be, it's a very scary episode. Um, but I, I like how it's still relevant to today and today's uh, news that's going on around us. Yeah. Yeah. The greatest strength of the episode, in my opinion, uh, are the philosophical, ethical, and moral points that are made in the shelter. It really makes you think, uh, here's one viewer's take who wrote in at the time of the original broadcast. I have no intention on, uh, or I have no intention of buying a shotgun to keep neighbors out of my basement. And the thought of one out of ten who have already done so is sickening. 
It makes a great <laughs> deal more sense to get together with our neighbors and build together a refuge for each neighborhood. Let's remember the old slogan, united we stand, divided we fall. So that was one viewer's take. I'm sure there were dissenting opinions uh, on both sides. I mean, I'm sure there are opinions on both sides of that. I will refrain from comment from right. that last question because uh, that opens up a whole exactly. other can of worms that we don't want to open up in the fifth dimension. And that's what makes the that that's my suggestion that that's what makes the episode so great that it again like many other episodes, Monsters Duo Maple Street, other uh, the obsolete man, it makes you think philosophically and ethically. What would you do in that situation? Like. Right? I mean, that's something that, thankfully, we haven't been confronted with here, but it obviously makes you think, what would I do? What's the right thing to do? What's the moral thing to do? What's the, the best thing to do for everybody? Obviously, you have a uh, an obligation, a commitment to take care of your own family, but, you know, on the other hand, you don't want to see people suffer. Well, let's just take down the Internet for about three days and let's see how people react. <laughs> the people would lose their ever-living mind. Yeah. Uh, or take their cell phone away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we would be an all-on, a whole-on civil war probably if they tried to take people's <laughs> cell phone, cell phones away. This episode, again, just in closing, made me think of the biblical account of Noah and the flood and the Book of Genesis. And right. I, if you have, if you're not familiar with that, I would challenge everybody to go to the Book of Genesis and read about Noah. Except, and the except they didn't break the door down. <laughs> they, they they couldn't break the, it. It was made out of wood, but yeah, it wasn't going to be. Uh, you know, it wasn't, it was sealed and no one was getting in and no one was getting out. Uh, the last thing, uh, was what prop are you taking Jimbo? What are you taking out of this episode? Did you think Man, about that? Part of me wants to say, part of me wants to say the birthday cake, but, um, <laughs> I prob probably got to go with the, uh, transistor radio. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I picked some, since I picked the airplane, Last time I tried to pick something smaller. <laughs> I tell you the whole bomb shelter, the whole bomb shelter area yeah. for your airplane to park into. Yeah, no, uh, something small and innocuous this time. I think it was a little kangaroo that uh, <laughs> she, uh, the doctor's wife, placed on the shelf of the shelter. <laughs> Obviously, it was a memento that was very important to her. I think it was a kangaroo. It looked like it looked like a little ceramic kangaroo. I'm taking that as my prop piece for this episode. Well, yeah, you got to. I mean, you could probably store all your props in your airplane that you just took. So. Yeah, I got to buy. I you know I got to take something smaller this time. So there you go. <laughs> hey, what, what were you going to rate it? You didn't give. A oh, rating. I'm sorry. I, I don't know if it's a nine. I just I don't think it reaches to the level of um, season two's. Um, the episode now it's slipping my mind. Why can't I think of the the highly rated episode? I think IMDb rated this episode at an eight point six. I'm probably gonna the Eye of the Beholder is a nine and it still stands alone. I think I'm probably gonna rate this probably like an eight six eight seven though. It's up there. It's not quite a nine, but it, it's really close. So yeah, great episode. Best one in season three so far. We're only into three episodes, but <laughs> three episodes. It, it's probably going to stand up. It's going to be a top ten all timer. I have pretty confident it's going to be top ten all time. Top ten all time yeah. out of like all I, five seasons. I think so. I th I think that'll play itself out. That's some that's some big talk. Yeah. 
there's a lot of great episodes, some that you haven't even seen yet, I'm sure, that you might have to recant that statement, but we will see. We'll see. Um, so I I think we, we've rattled on long enough about this uh, episode. If you'd like to follow us on Facebook, we are the Tragedy of Cinema Podcast. Um, you can find us on there. The answer to get into the group is... Um, uh, Jimbo and Kyle, or even put ADZ or Eric, and we will accept you in there. Um, if you want to email us, we are the tragedy of cinema at gmail.com. If you want to leave us a review, uh, you can leave that on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen. Uh, so Eric, any last thoughts? Nope. I think we've gone, we've gone really long on this one, but it was a good one. So, but sometimes you have to, when there's such a lot of good information and stuff that's even relevant to today, I don't mind it. Yep. And I don't think our listeners will either. So, well, with that being said, I think this episode's coming to a close, and that's a wrap. And cut. No moral, no message, no prophetic tract. Just a simple statement of fact. For civilization to survive, the human race has to remain civilized. Tonight's very small exercise in logic from the Twilight Zone.